Hey everybody, this is Steve Carroll, and this is the Invasive Podcast. Today we'll be talking about North American reptile bites. This is mostly focusing on snake bites, but there's a short section on gila monster bites as well. Before you turn off this episode because you live in an area that doesn't get a lot of snake bites, keep in mind that venomous snake bites have been recorded in every state in the U.S. except for Hawaii and Alaska. Even if you never see these bites, it's still useful knowledge to know for your in-service and board exams. There's also a bonus section with practical advice on what to do if you're bitten by a snake in the wilderness. Today's episode was written and recorded by Dr. Dave Hansen, who's going to give his own intro. So let's get started on North American snake bites. Hey gang, Dave Hansen here for EM Basic. Today we're going to be discussing venomous reptile bites, specifically the venomous reptiles of North America. Before we begin, as this is my first podcast for EM Basic, let me tell you all a little about myself. I graduated from the West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine in 2013 and completed my internship in general surgery the following year. Since then, I have been an active duty Army physician with an aviation unit at Fort Bliss in Texas. It is worth noting that I am not a board-certified emergency medicine physician, nor am I currently in a training program to become one. However, this podcast has been proofread by two emergency medicine board-certified docs, and I feel that it presents good and accurate evidence-based information. Stay tuned for the bonus section, which will include first aid techniques for treating snake bites in the wild. As a disclaimer, views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the United States Army or the Fort Bliss Post Command. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be perceived as the standard of care. Please consult a toxicologist and or a poison control physician for guidance. Let's begin with the clinical scenario. You are working in an emergency room in Central California when your patient arrives. He is a 37-year-old man brought in by EMS with a chief complaint of a snake bite. EMS reports that this happened four hours ago. The patient was hiking in Yosemite National Park when he stepped on a snake and was bitten. He was unable to call 911 at the time because he had no cell phone signal and he had to hike back two miles to the trailhead with the help of his wife. A ranger was alerted who called EMS. By that time, the patient had begun to experience some altered mental status, so the history was given to EMS by his wife. She reports that he had complained about pain over the bite site, he had numbness and tingling in his mouth and tongue, and he began breathing rapidly. His wife reports that she is sure that she saw a rattle at the end of its tail, but she is not sure as to what type of rattlesnake it was. She also reports that he vomited in the ambulance. Your initial impression is that you see a 37-year-old male on the stretcher with a swollen left foot and showing signs of altered mental status. He is responding to pain and to voice but unable to answer questions. He is able to protect his airway. His vitals include a BP of 102 over 65, a pulse of 123, respiratory rate of 22, and a temperature of 101.7. His O2 saturation is at 98%. EMS has dressed the wound with a pressure dressing and splinted his lower leg to decrease movement. There is no compression band or tourniquet on his leg. EMS has established IV access and given two liters of normal saline and is supplying O2 via nasal cannula. Red flags to be concerned of include hiking in an area where venomous reptiles are endemic. He is showing systemic symptoms to include AMS, continued bleeding despite the dressing, fever, and hypotension. Fortunately, there is no sign of respiratory depression. As his wife feels that she saw a rattle at the end of the tail, this is very concerning for a venomous snake bite, specifically a rattlesnake bite. 
Before we get into supportive therapy and treatment, let's consider what we know so far and try to narrow down exactly what type of snake bit this patient. There are three main species of venomous reptiles in North America, and this podcast will focus on the species of North America alone. The venomous reptiles of Africa, South America, and Australia each deserve their own podcast. The American Association of Poison Control Centers reports that there are approximately 5,000 snake bites annually in North America. The most common venomous reptile bites arise from the Crotalinae subfamily, also known as the pit viper, so named for the small indentation behind the nostril which the snakes use for heat sensing. This includes rattlesnakes, copperheads, and water moccasins, also known as the cottonmouth. Additionally, the Elapidae family is endemic to southern U.S. This family includes coral snakes with their well-known red, yellow, and black stripes. The final type of venomous reptile endemic to the U.S. is the Gila monster. This is a large, slow-moving lizard that lives primarily in New Mexico and Arizona. It has potent toxin, but lacks an efficient way to deliver it. Because the Gila monster is slow-moving, is not good at delivering venom, and is easily avoided, there have not been any known deaths from Gila monster bites in over a century, and it rarely, if ever, presents a danger to humans. As frontier physician and natural selection advocate Dr. Ward noted in 1899, if a man is fool enough to get bit by a Gila monster, he ought to die. Despite Dr. Ward's opinion, we will discuss Gila monster treatment later on. Now that we know the three venomous North American species of reptile, let's apply this to the patient. A Gila monster is unlikely in this case, and while a coral snake bite is possible, the fact that the wife was able to positively identify a rattle at the end of the tail confirms that this is most likely a crotaline species bite, likely the western diamondback. Crotaline bites account for the vast majority of venomous reptile bites in North America. Let's move on to physical exam. He appears as a normally healthy 37-year-old male, but with altered mental status and is unable to answer questions. He is protecting his airway as noted, vitals as above. There is evidence of a bite on his left foot, and blood is flowing freely when the gauze is removed. There is marked edema and ecchymosis around the site, and it is extending beyond the puncture wounds as well. The remainder of the exam is unremarkable. It should be noted that when dealing with snake bites, there are some variants. It could be a dry bite, meaning there is no envenomation, or there could be a small or large amount of venom. When performing a physical exam, and there is the presence of bite marks with local tissue injury in the form of edema and ecchymosis, then this strongly suggests crotaline envenomation. We must assume that a large amount of venom was injected during the bite and begin treatment immediately. So to summarize, this is a 37-year-old male who reports being bitten by a rattlesnake approximately four hours ago but is unsure of what species. He is experiencing systemic effects to include AMS and shock. He is experiencing pain in the affected limb, nausea, vomiting, and local wound edema with ecchymosis. We believe this to be a rattlesnake bite, so we'll proceed with treatment of pit viper envenomation. This is the time at which someone is able to give a good history and positive identification of a rattle on the snake leads towards pit viper treatment. Please note that even if you are sure of what type of snake is involved, be sure to call Poison Control for guidance after you have initiated supportive treatment. The number for Poison Control is 1-800-222-1222. Now let's turn to actually treating the patient. Do not delay supportive treatment and immediately establish IV access and fluids. Treat pain with IV opioids, but if suspicious of a coral snake bite, tread carefully because coral snake venom causes a neurotoxic effect that can lead to respiratory depression. 
You should also have a crash cot nearby and be prepared to intubate. Note that neurotoxic effects with respiratory depression are more common in coral snakes than in pit vipers, but the Mojave rattlesnake's venom can cause respiratory depression as well, and since we don't always have a positive ID on the snake in question, it's best to be prepared. You should do a circumferential measurement of the limb to assess the progression of swelling. Mark the ends of any erythema with a marker and be prepared to repeat that Q30 minutes. Whenever possible, you should try to tailor treatment to the specific snake involved, but don't waste time trying to figure that out before beginning supportive measures. Let's move on now to treating the envenomation itself. Rattlesnake venom contains a mixture of glycoproteins and approximately 50 different macromolecules which provide a wide array of systemic, local, and hemotoxic effects. Systemic effects are manifested by hypotension secondary to bleeding, third spacing, and vomiting. Controlling the systemic effects is the goal of supportive care. Hemotoxic effects are due to the degradation of fibrinogen and platelet aggregation and destruction, leading to thrombocytopenia. Bleeding can occur at the bite site, but can also manifest as epistaxis or gingival bleeding. For labs, obtain a CBC, a bleeding time, an INRPT, APTT, fibrinogen level, and a D-dimer. Additionally, the venom contains mitotoxic compounds such as TNF-alpha that can damage muscle tissue and lead to rhabdomyolysis. You should also obtain electrolytes, LFTs, CK, and a UA to assess for this. You should also obtain an EKG if the patient is older than 50 or has a cardiac history. Obtain an ABG or VBG if there are signs of respiratory compromise. As coral snake venom commonly causes respiratory depression, obtain baseline pulmonary function tests at the bedside, specifically maximal inspiratory pressure, maximal expiratory pressure, and forced vital capacity. Get a wound culture and obtain a type and screen in case blood products are necessary. Finally, unless the patient can positively tell you that they have had a tetanus shot in the past 10 years, be sure to update their tetanus. If there are systemic effects like hypotension, AMS, or coagulopathy, then this is evidence of envenomation and you should proceed to antivenom treatment after supportive measures have been established. If your hospital does not stock antivenom, you should immediately transfer the patient to a hospital that does after you've completed supportive care. Modern antivenom is made from sheep. A herd will be immunized with one of four known crotaline venoms, invoking an immune response to which the sheep will produce antibodies. The FAB fragments will then be harvested and combined with other venom antibodies to make crofab, a polyvalent antivenom appropriate for treating all manner of crotalus envenomations. All antivenom should be given IV, diluted in 250 milliliters normal saline. Note that there is approximately a 10% chance of allergic reaction to crofab, so this antivenom should be given either in the ED or the ICU, and you should be ready in case the patient has an anaphylactic or allergic reaction. Additionally, antivenom treatments may result in serum sickness. Serious episodes occurred in 5% of patients after crofab treatment. Symptoms are fever, rash, and arthralgias, which are treated with prednisone 1 mg per kg per day and taper 1 to 2 weeks. Give 10% of the antivenom dose to begin with and observe the patient for any allergic reaction. If there is none, give the remainder of the dose over 1 hour. The first goal of treatment is initial control, which means to stop the progression of the local, systemic, and hematological symptoms. Once initial control is obtained, 
provide four to six vials of antivenom as a maintenance dose every six hours. This is because the half-life of snake venom is longer than that of the antivenom, so redosing is necessary to continue treating the envenomation. Please note that pediatric patients should receive the same initial dose of antivenom as there may have been a large amount of envenomation. Antivenom is best administered IV, but if there is no IV access, you can do this IO. Do not inject antivenom IM, as it will not reach systemic levels fast enough. Always follow the instructions within the antivenom pack for root administration. Continue the aggressive resuscitation therapy to treat venom-related shock and introduce vasopressin as needed. Blood products may be indicated if hematological abnormalities lead to profuse bleeding. However, this should be for an immediate fix of thrombocytopenia and is not a substitute for antivenom therapy. Because the venom is causing the coagulopathy, focus on treating the envenomation and the coagulopathy will resolve. Continue to monitor the patient and note for swelling in the limb, as increased swelling can lead to compartment syndrome. Other signs and symptoms associated with compartment syndrome are increasing pain refractory to opioids, increasing firmness on palpation of the limb, and loss of sensation distal to the injury and loss of pulse. Consult ortho early, because as compartment pressures rise, an emergent fasciotomy may become necessary. Elevate the limb and consider using mannitol 1 to 2 grams per kilogram IV over 30 minutes. The idea behind this is that the compartment syndrome was not caused by trauma or bleeding, as in typical compartment syndrome, but rather by the snake venom. Giving antivenom to treat the snake venom and mannitol to draw fluid back to the vascular cavity will lessen limb pressures. However, it is worth noting that use of mannitol has been based on case reports and anecdotal opinions rather than clinical trials, so proceed with caution here. Mannitol can also cause or exacerbate hypotension, so you probably shouldn't use it in patients with low or borderline blood pressures. There is limited data for the need for antibiotics and is not routinely recommended. Let's review the treatment of pit viper envenomation step by step. Step 1. Assess the patient. Begin supportive care with obtaining vitals, IV access, and beginning fluids. Mark the leading edges of the swelling with a pen and recheck every 30 minutes. Immobilize and elevate the extremity. Treat pain. Get labs, specifically a CBC, CMP, bleeding time, INRPT, APTT, fibrinogen level, and a D-dimer. Also get a CK and a UA to assess for rhabdomyolysis and an EKG in patients over 50. A VBG or ABG may be useful in those with questionable respiratory status. Update tetanus as needed and call poison control. There will be a physician specialist who can assist either in person or over the phone for life-threatening cases. Step 2. Check for envenomation. This will manifest either as swelling, tenderness, ecchymosis, or elevated pro-time. If there are systemic signs to include hypotension, bleeding beyond the puncture site, angioedema, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or respiratory depression, assume envenomation. If there is a puncture wound but none of the systemic signs, then assume a dry bite. Continue to monitor for 8 to 12 hours in this case. Repeat labs and watch for systemic signs as there may be delayed signs of envenomation, especially in the coral snake. If there are any systemic signs as above, then proceed to antivenom treatment. Step 3. Treat with antivenom. Mix 4 to 6 vials of Crofab in 250 milliliter normal saline and give IV over 1 hour. If the patient is in shock or having serious bleeding, then increase this dose to 8 to 12 vials. 
Give the first dose either in the ED or the ICU and watch for any adverse effects and treat accordingly. Step four, determine if initial control has been achieved. Initial control is achieved when local swelling, tenderness, and erythema is no longer progressing than when the patient first presented. Coagulopathy is improving as evidenced by pro-time results or clear resolution of bleeding. Any signs of neurotoxicity to include respiratory depression or paresthesias are clearly improving, and if not improved, then you repeat the initial AV treatment and get a poison control expert. If improved, then move on to the next step. Step 5. Monitor the patient. Perform serial exams to ensure that systemic symptoms don't return, because remember that the half-life of antivenom is less than that of the venom itself. If systemic signs do return, then repeat the initial antivenom dose. Maintenance antivenom treatment of 1-2 to two vials every 6 hours if systemic signs don't return. Make sure you repeat labs every 6-12 to 12 hours and admit the patient. Step 6 is discharge. You can discharge the patient when there is no progression of systemic venom effects and labs normalize. The differential diagnosis for the chief complaint of a snake bite is going to focus largely on what species of snake did the biting, as well as whether it was a dry bite or an envenomation. Dry bite occurs in approximately 25% of snake bites. If there is evidence of a reptile bite, but no systemic effects, then it may very well have been a dry bite. Regardless, these patients will need 8-12 to 12 hours of observation in the emergency department looking for any type of systemic symptoms like respiratory depression, hypotension, tachycardia, altered mental status, local wound involvement, or coagulopathy. While still evaluating for dry bite, you should perform the usual supportive care and the labs outlined as above, but hold off on antivenom until there is evidence of envenomation. Additional differential considerations are that it is not a rattlesnake bite, but rather a coral snake bite. Crotalid bites are much more common in North America, but coral snake envenomation is also a possibility and should be considered. Coral snakes reside in southeastern United States, Texas, and Arizona. They are much less common than rattlesnake bites, as Poison Control reports somewhere between 20 to 40 coral snake bites annually in the United States. In the U.S., the old rhyme of red on yellow will kill a fellow, red on black, venom black, is true, but that is not necessarily true in other parts of the world. Coral snake venom is primarily neurotoxic, acting as a competitive inhibitor on the muscarinic acetylcholine receptor. So on physical exam, we should be looking for neuromuscular type effects to include tremor, salivation, diplopia, fixed constricted pupils, seizure, and respiratory depression. The initial symptoms of the bite may be relatively minor to include nausea, vomiting, and headache. The bite site may or may not be swollen, but there will be markedly less local effects than with pit viper envenomation. If you have a clinical suspicion of a coral snake bite, the patient should be admitted for observation because the coral snake envenomation is more subtle than a rattlesnake envenomation. There is sometimes only minor wound swelling and no pain upon presentation. However, if there is suspicion of a coral snake envenomation, you must watch this patient carefully because the neurotoxin can take up to 12 hours to manifest. You should obtain the usual baseline of labs to include INR, PT, APTT, D-dimer, and a fibrinogen, CBC, renal, and CK. If the wound has been dressed in the field, obtain labs before removing first aid, obtain more labs one hour after, and then at 6 to 12 hours after that. Look for evidence of a bleeding diathesis to include elevated INR or D-dimer. Similar to pit viper envenomation, there may be platelet effects, 
or the patient may present in rhabdomyolysis. If you are sure that it was a coral snake that bit the patient and there is evidence of envenomation to include neurotoxic symptoms of cranial nerve weakness, descending paralysis, muscle weakness, or respiratory depression, then the victim is a candidate for antivenom. A quick word on this. The last batch of FDA-approved coral snake antivenom was synthesized in the mid-2000s and it expired in April of 2016. Once the current supply of coral snake antivenom is gone, it's gone. Pfizer has been working to create a new coral snake antivenom, but since there are so few coral snake bites, it has been difficult to get the case numbers needed for FDA approval. Look for a new coral snake antivenom in the future, but the scarcity of the current supply may mean your institution does not have any. If your patient is showing respiratory depression or bulbar paralysis, and you are in a position to give coral snake antivenom, then give 3-5 to five vials via slow IV push. Administer the antivenom slowly and watch for adverse reactions to include rash, wheeze, hypotension, or angioedema. As the neurotoxin can cause respiratory depression, make sure you obtain baseline pulmonary function values, specifically maximal inspiratory pressure, maximal expiratory pressure, and forced vital capacity. Admit this patient to the ICU as they may need to be emergently intubated. Finally, despite the objection of the irascible Dr. Hill, let's review Gila monster bites as well, as they are the third venomous reptile living in North America. As noted, Gila monsters are slow-moving and unable to quickly deliver venom, so it will take a prolonged bite to envenomate the victim. The Gila monster will usually just cause local pain at the bite site, but an envenomation will cause nonspecific symptoms to include weakness, lightheadedness, and diaphoresis. Severe hypertension may also develop, which is likely to be the most serious symptom of envenomation. Treatment is supportive, as outlined above. Additionally, the Gila monster's teeth may break off in the bite wound and become septic, so make sure to get imaging and clean the wound thoroughly. It is good to know your ED's capabilities before being in a situation like this. If your ED does not have any antivenom, then you should perform supportive treatment and transfer the patient to a place that does have it as soon as possible. If you have antivenom, then you can treat. If there is suspicion of a bite from a venomous reptile, there needs to be at least 8 hours of observation, as it may take several hours for symptoms of envenomation to manifest, especially in the case of coral snake bites. If there is any evidence of envenomation, the patient should go to the ICU for admission and treatment as outlined above. If the wound gets progressively worse and there is concern for compartment syndrome, be sure to consult orthopedics early in case medical treatment of compartment syndrome fails and you need to proceed to fasciotomy. The patient must be treated as both a sepsis and a trauma patient and that you must correct shock and or respiratory depression from the effects of the venom and consider the possibility of blood loss from thrombocytopenia. As a summary, pit viper venom can have both a hemo and neurotoxic effect, whereas coral snake venom is mostly neurotoxic. Your labs and workup should focus on these effects. Treatment should address systemic and hemorrhagic effects while watching for respiratory failure. Be prepared to treat respiratory failure by intubating early. Patients should get antivenom treatment as soon as envenomation is apparent, and then treatment will be largely supportive. Let's move on now to the bonus section on trying to avoid venomous reptile bites and what to do if one occurs while you're in the wild. This is important to know because every state in the U.S. has a recorded instance of a venomous reptile except for Alaska and Hawaii, although Hawaii does have the yellow-bellied sea snake, which is highly venomous. 
So chances are that if you enjoy hiking or spending time outdoors, then you run the risk of encountering a venomous snake. The best practice is to practice prevention. Wear footwear that will not be easy to pierce, carry a walking stick, and watch your step. Do not step anywhere without looking first, especially when walking through high grass, stepping over a log, or walking near a rock pile. If you do see a snake, it is best to admire from a distance, even if you think that it is non-venomous. The rattlesnake will not always rattle before it strikes, as it will not waste time warning you if it is about to be stepped on. If you are bitten, back away and do not try to capture the snake yourself, as this can lead to more bites. If you do kill the snake, do not handle it because the snake's bite reflex is still intact for several minutes after death. The most important thing for someone who has been bitten to do is to stay calm. The more you panic, the more your heart rate will go up, allowing the venom to spread. Try at this time to administer first aid. Remove any tight clothing around the bite site, as this limb is likely to swell and may have to be cut off later. Allow the wound to bleed for 15 to 30 seconds before cleaning, and apply clean dressings as available, and try to splint the limb to decrease its movement. Do not use ice, as this has been shown to spread the poison further. Do not use a tourniquet, as this can lead to limb ischemia. Pressure immobilization, the practice of using a construction band proximal to the wound to prevent venous and lymphatic spread, is used in the case of a coral snake envenomation, but it is not recommended in the case of a pit viper bite. As we just learned, crotaline envenomation can lead to compartment syndrome, and putting a constriction band on a pit viper envenomated limb can potentially worsen the situation by adding additional pressure. If you are absolutely sure that a coral snake was the culprit, then pressure immobilization is recommended. Additionally, do not cut the wound open and try to suck the venom out, as this has never been shown to be helpful and may lead to infection. Get to help as soon as possible and limit use of the affected limb. If you're bitten on the foot or leg, this may mean a buddy carry or a stretcher. If hiking solo, get back to the trailhead ASAP and call 911 if you have cell signal. Try to remain hydrated to counter the effects of hypotension. If you are regularly hiking or hunting in an area known endemic to venomous reptiles, consider carrying a snake bite kit. Well, that's all I have for venomous reptiles in North America. Please refer to the show notes for pictures and references. Any questions can be addressed to me via EM Basic. Until next time, this is Dave Hansen for EM Basic via Conhuevos Amigos. Hey everyone, this is Steve again. Thanks again to Dr. Dave Hansen for the great review of North American Snake Bites. Hopefully this episode will help you be much better prepared for the next time you see this in your ED. I'd like to take a minute to thank our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. They have a review on North American Snake Bites and Scorpion Bites from September 2006 that you should definitely check out that will help supplement this episode. Even though it's a review from 2006, the basics are still reviewed in a concise manner. This month's issue of EB Medicine is on acute decompensated heart failure, which we obviously see a lot of in the ED. Residents can get free access to all their great resources by going to the EB Medicine EM Basic page at ebmedicine.net slash embasic or following the link on the website. As always, attendings can get a great discount on their products that offer CME as well. That's all for now. This is Steve Carroll for EM Basic, signing off.